Section 16 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds, The Projected Railway Company. It was striking ten by all the clocks at the West End, on the morning of the day following the incidents which have occupied the five preceding chapters, when a cab drove with insane speed along a fashionable street in that district of the metropolis just alluded to, and, having stopped at the door of the best house in the said street, out leapt Mr. Bubbleton Stiles with a large roll of papers in his hand. I told you that you would not do it by ten o'clock, said this gentleman, addressing the reproach, accompanied by an angry look, to the cabman. Not done by ten, sir, exclaimed the astonished and indignant driver. Why, it's only just a finish striking by every blessed clock in this here part of town. Just finished striking, cried Mr. Stiles, pulling out his watch. It's a minute and a quarter past ten, I tell you. Here's your fare. Do, Bob, all the way from Crosby Chambers, growled the man turning the money over and over in a discontented fashion in the palm of his hand. Come, come, that won't just do, if you please, sir. You promised me three, Bob, if I brought you here by ten. And you did not fulfill the bargain, sharply interrupted Mr. Stiles, as he hurried up the steps of the large house and knocked at the door. This was immediately opened by a servant in such a splendid, outrageously splendid, livery that no other indication was required to distinguish the mansion of a parvenu, or in other words, a vulgar upstart. Is Mr. Podgerson at home? demanded Mr. Stiles. Yes, sir. Walk in, sir. What name, sir? were the hurried phrases which came from the domestic's lips. Well, ain't you going to pass the extra bob, you gent? cried the cabman, as he mounted sulkily to his seat and drew a sack around his knees, although it was the middle of summer, so strong is the force of habit. Mr. Stiles deigned no reply to this derogatory adjuration, but, having given his card to the servant, he entered the great man's great house, while a cab drove away at a pace which seemed to intimate that the horse had become as sulky as its master. The hall was very magnificent, but everything was new, the statues, the vases, the marble pillars, the gilding on the doors that opened out into the ground floor apartments, even the liveries of the servants lounging about, all were new. Mr. Stiles was shown into a small parlor where the pictures, the mirrors, the mantel ornaments, the furniture, the carpet, the hangings, everything there was likewise new. The paint scarcely seemed to have dried, nor the putty in the window frames to have hardened. In a few minutes, the domestic, who had left Mr. Stiles alone during that interval, returned with the intimation that Mr. Podgerson would see him at once. And the railway projector was forthwith conducted up a wide and handsome marble staircase through a splendidly furnished anteroom into a sumptuous apartment where the great man was seated at a table covered with railway plans, letters, maps, newspapers, visitors' cards, and acts of parliament, 
all scattered about in a confusion that had been admirably well studied and purposely arranged. The impression of the newness of everything in the mansion was strengthened in the mind of Mr. Bubbleton Stiles at every pace which he had taken from the hall door into the room where he now found himself. It appeared as if Mr. Podgerson, or Mr. Podgerson's wife, or both, had endeavored to the utmost of human power to crowd the apartments, staircases, the landings, and in fact every nook and corner with as many evidences of wealth as possible. Fine paintings by old masters set in brand new glittering frames were hung in the very worst lights and without the least regard to their relative styles, coloring, or subjects. Each room had two or three timepieces in it, and as they were not in accordance with respect to the hour, Mr. Bubbleton Stiles' ideas of precision and punctuality received a severe shock when he heard ten o'clock proclaimed a half a dozen times during the first twenty minutes which elapsed after he first set foot in the mansion. In a word, the entire aspect of the house was a reflection of the vulgar, untasteful, and self-sufficient minds of the stuck-up people, who, having grown suddenly rich, did not know how to render their dwelling elegant and comfortable without making it gaudy and ridiculously ostentatious in its appointments. Mr. Podgeson was a short, stout, thick-set man, with an enormous stomach, a very wide back, and little stumpy legs. His head seemed to be stuck on his shoulders without the intervening aid of any neck at all, and his features were coarse, ugly, and totally inexpressive of even the slightest spark of intelligence. His tongue appeared to be much too large for his mouth, his speech being remarkably disagreeable. Indeed, his free utterance seemed to be impeded as if he were always sucking a large lollipop or had an enormous quid of tobacco stuck in his cheek. When he walked, it was with the most ungainly waddle that can possibly be conceived, and his clothes, though no doubt made by a fashionable tailor, sat upon him just as if they had been thrown on with a pitchfork. Had this man been invested with regal robes, had he arrayed himself in the Tyrian purple which Rome's emperors were wont to wear, he could not have looked otherwise than a low vulgarian, which he was. We shall not pause for a moment to give account of the rise of Mr. Podgerson from obscurity to that renown with which the sudden acquisition of great wealth established for him. Having sprung from the people, he turned against the people when he became a rich man. His property enabled him to purchase a borough, and the instant he found himself in Parliament, he joined the protectionists, the bitter enemies of the popular cause. Had this man taken his place among the liberals, we should not have remembered his physical ugliness and his immense vulgarity of manners. We should have admired and esteemed him. But to associate with aristocrats, to squeeze the squat, pudgy form amongst the exquisites and the exclusives of the West End, to affect the most refined notions and ape everything fashionable, for him to do all of this, oh, it is really too ridiculous, too ludicrous, too absurd to permit us to keep our countenance when we think of it. Persons cannot help being naturally vulgar 
any more than they can help being ugly. But the vulgar should not thrust themselves into those scenes and spheres where they are certain to stand out in most ignoble prominency, thereby forcing on all beholders the effect of the ludicrous contrast. Neither should the ugly adopt such an awful swagger and assume an air of such insufferable self-complacency as to render themselves most disagreeably remarkable and conspicuous. Mr. Podgeson had acquired his immense wealth by railway speculations, and the disgusting sycophants, who invariably attached themselves to rich men with weak minds, had nonsensically dubbed him the railway lion. Had they called him the railway elephant, in allusion to his unwieldy proportions, or the railway bear, in reference to his manners, or the railway donkey, in respect to his intelligence, they would have been more faithful to truth. But the railway lion he was, and it was now in the presence of this tremendous animal that Mr. Bubbleton Stiles stood. Without rising from his chair, Mr. Podgeson, M.P., waved his hand with all the majesty of a stage monarch, and as this gesticulation was intended to be a fashionable, no, a dignified mode of desiring Mr. Bubbleton Stiles to be seated, Mr. Bubbleton Stiles seated himself accordingly. Mr. Podgeson then stared very hard at his visitor. This was the railway lion's method of intimating that he was all attention. I believe, sir, said Mr. Stiles, in a very polite and courteous manner, but without anything like cringing servility, I believe, sir, that you last night received a letter from Alderman Tripes. Oh, ah, exclaimed Mr. Podgeson in his thick voice. I remember my very particular and intimate friend, Mr. Alderman Tripes, assures me in his communication that you have a famous project on the tappy. Mr. Podgeson met tape, but could not precisely achieve the correct pronunciation. And that project I shall have much pleasure in submitting to you, sir, added Mr. Stiles, proceeding to unfold the large roll of papers which he had brought with him. Well, I don't mind. That is, to oblige you, I'll just look over them, said Mr. Podgeson, in an indifferent, careless way. But, he added, glancing at the elegant watch, which he drew with affected negligence from his waistcoat pocket, I've got an appointment at quarter to eleven, and I must be punctual to the rendezvous. Mr. Stiles assured the great man that he would not detain him for a moment beyond the time named for the rendezvous, and, spreading his plans and maps on the table, the small speculator began to explain his objects and views to the large capitalist. Who's the engineer? inquired the latter. Then, Looking at the corner of the plan and perceiving the name, he cried, Oh, Dummerly, eh? Well, he's a good man, a very good man. I was talking to Lord Noodleton the other day about him. Lord Noodleton and me are intimate friends, you know, very intimate. His lordship has reason to be proud of your friendship, sir, observed Mr. Stiles, adroitly availing himself of the opportunity to pay a compliment. Well, Noodleton does seem grateful, said the railway lion, glancing complacently at one of his boots. But about this speck of yours, Mr. Stiles, shall you have a good list of provisional committee? 
First rate, sir, especially if you will condescend to hit it, returned the small speculator with a bow to the great one. Well, we shall see, exclaimed Mr. Podgerson. But first, as to the probability of success, let me just make a calculation or two. Nothing is done without calculations, and I'm a rather quick at figures. Now, your capital is eight million pounds and four hundred thousand shares. Good. Deposit two pounds two shillings per share. Good again. But about the expenses and receipts, the outlay and the incomings on which we may reckon with certainty, let me see. Twice two's four, and twice four's eight, and nine times nine's eighty-one, and eleven times eleven's a hundred and twenty-one. That gives us 500,000 here, then there's 200,000 here. Well, cried the great man, suddenly interrupting himself in the midst of calculations, which, although they were as unintelligible as Chinese language to Mr. Stiles, it is to be hoped were a trifle more comprehensive to the gentleman who was making them in a musing, half-whispering tone and counting mysteriously on his fingers at the same time. Well, he cried, suddenly desisting from the arithmetical process with a satisfied air of a man who had arrived at conviction by means of the most subtle considerations. Well, I do think it will succeed, Mr. Stiles, and I, I will condescend to become our chairman, Mr. Podgeson, said the other, finishing the sentence which the railway lion's extreme modesty and sensitive bashfulness had left thus incomplete. I am well aware, sir, and the public are well aware likewise, that you have entered into the grand affairs of the railway world with no interested motive, that you never took a single share with the idea of making it a means of gain. No, sir, your views have been wholly and solely to benefit your fellow countrymen. Indeed, you yourself have proclaimed as much in your place in the House of Commons, and the civilized world echoes with the mighty truth. You are a benefactor, sir, a philanthropist, a patriot, and no sordid ideas ever influenced you. It is upon this ground, and on this ground only, without even venturing to hint that there will be 5,000 shares reserved for the chairman and provisional committee men, and that they are certain to rise to a high premium the moment they are issued, without daring to mention such a thing in your presence, sir, but relying solely on your known readiness to countenance every fair, legitimate, and honorable undertaking which promises to benefit our fellow men and produce 50% profits. It is upon these grounds, Mr. Podgerson, that I solicit you to become the chairman of the Grand British Longitudinal Railway. Mr. Stiles narrowly watched the effect which this magniloquent oration produced upon the railway lion, and as he beheld the fat, ignoble, vulgar countenance of that stupendous animal slowly expanding with satisfaction, he knew that he was as sure of nailing Mr. Podgerson for a chairman as he was sure of seeing Captain O'Blunderbuss and Mr. Frank Curtis in the afternoon at three o'clock to partake of chops and sherry at Crosby Hall Chambers. Nor was Mr. Bubbleton Stiles mistaken. In as dignified a manner as it was in his nature to assume, in as good English as it was in his power to employ, 
The great Mr. Podgerson gave his assent to the proposition. Mr. Stiles was already in the midst of a set speech of thanks when a pompous-looking livery servant entered the room. "'Well, Thomas, what now?' demanded Mr. Podgerson. "'Please, sir,' answered the domestic, whose countenance denoted offended dignity and wounded pride. "'There's a troublesome gentleman down below who says he must and will have a interview with you, sir.' "'Must and will!' ejaculated the railway lion, sinking back in his chair with an amazement which could not have been greater had someone rushed in to tell him that the Chinese had invaded England and made a Mandarin Lord Mayor of London. Yes, sir, must and will, groaned the horrified domestic. Well, I never heard such impotence in my life, exclaimed Mr. Bubbleton Stiles, affecting the deepest indignation, a little piece of hypocrisy which completely won the railway lion's heart. And does this person... "'For you were wrong to call him a gentleman, John,' said Mr. Podgerson, somewhat recovering from his stupefaction. "'Does this person, who must and will see me, John, me, Mr. Stiles, does this person, I say, give his name or business?' "'Please, sir, he gave me his card,' returned the flunky, "'and here it be.' The high and mighty railway lion took the pasteboard between the tips of his thumb and forefinger, and having glanced at it, he tossed it with sublime scorn into the waste paper basket, exclaiming in his rough, disagreeable voice, Mr. Clarence Villiers, eh? Well, I suppose I'd better see him. Don't move, Mr. Stiles. You shall just see how I'll serve the insolent fellow that must and will have an interview with me. The domestic retreated without turning his back upon his master, or in other words, stepped backwards to the door as if he were quitting the presence of royalty, and Mr. Stiles again vented his well-affected indignation and surprise that people should be so bold and inconsiderate as to obtrude themselves into the presence of Mr. Podgerson in such a manner. Bold and inconsiderate, repeated the railway lion. It is audacious and intolerable. Shameful, cried Mr. Stiles. Perfectly insupportable, vociferated Mr. Podgerson. Monstrous in the extreme, exclaimed Mr. Bubbleton Stiles, actually working himself up into a passion. But I'll put a stop to it, continued the railway lion, dealing a tremendous blow with his clenched fist upon the table. I'll bring in a bill next session, Mr. Stiles, to protect public men from insolent intrusion. It will serve the scoundrels quite right, my dear sir, responded the small speculator approvingly. By gad, I'll pay the rascals off for it, exclaimed the mighty man, who could command hundreds of thousands of pounds, but not the minutest fraction of his temper. The door now opened again, and the pompous domestic, whose countenance was expressive of deep indignation, ushered in the reader's old friend, Mr. Clarence Villiers, now a fine, handsome man in the prime of life. Well, sir, what do you want? demanded Mr. Podgerson, with all the overbearing insolence of a contemptible parvenu. In the first place, sir, replied Clarence, speaking in a firm but gentlemanly tone, and glancing toward the servant who lingered near the door, 
I must take the liberty of advising you to recommend to your lackey to treat at least with respect, if not with courtesy, those persons whom business may bring to your house. For I can assure you that it required no ordinary forbearance on my part to restrain my hand from laying this cane across his shoulders. What, sir, you dare, sir, stammered Mr. Podgerson, his vast, ignoble countenance becoming the color of scarlet. I dare chastise anyone who is insolent to me, be he who or what he may be, sir, answered Villiers in a very significant way, and at so determined a tone, too, that the pompous domestic evaporated, and the railway lion was struck speechless with amazement. For he felt as if he were literally bearded in his den. Being myself a gentleman by birth and education, and I hope in manners and conduct, I am accustomed to treat my equals with courtesy and my inferiors with kindness, and I will tolerate insult from neither. But enough of that subject, Mr. Podgerson, continued Villiers. The object of my visit is soon explained. For many years, I have enjoyed a confidential situation in the service of the Earl of Ellingham. Oh, I really beg your pardon, Mr. Villiers, exclaimed the railway lion with a start as if the piles of a Voltaic battery had suddenly been applied to his unwieldy carcass. I wasn't aware that you knew Lord Ellingham, or else... But pray, take a chair, Mr. Villiers. Thank you, sir. I would rather stand, answered Clarence in a cold, almost contemptuous tone, for he saw full well that this sudden politeness was not paid to himself, but to his connection with aristocracy. Yesterday afternoon, Mr. Podgerson, I returned from the country by the Western Provinces Railway, and I was most anxious to reach London at the usual hour for the arrival of that particular train, inasmuch as the business which I had in hand for my noble employer was urgent and pressing. Conceive, then, my annoyance when the train stopped for three-quarters of an hour at a midway station and without any substantial reason. I remonstrated with the persons on duty at that station. I even alighted and saw the clerk. Several other gentlemen, whose time was likewise precious, joined me in my endeavors to prevent further delay, but all in vain. And the excuse was that the train had to wait for a basket of fruit for Mrs. Podgerson, the lady of the chairman of the company. Now, sir, with all possible respect to the fair sex, I submit to you that it is too bad, and pray, sir, interrupted the mighty railway lion, flying into a furious passion, why should not my wife receive her fruit in time? By gad, sir, the train should have waited an hour for it, had it been necessary, and it would have been as much as the situations of the guard and engineer were worth to have continued the journey without that basket. Then you mean me to understand, sir, said Villiers, in a calm and gentlemanly tone, which contrasted strongly with the insolent, overbearing manner of the purse-proud Bulgarian upstart. You mean me to understand that you approve of the conduct of your underlings in delaying a train containing upwards of a hundred persons, to most of whom time was precious, for the sake of a basket of fruit? Approve of it, cried the railway lion astonished that any doubt should exist upon the point. Why, I ordered it, sir. 
then all I can say and comment upon such improper conduct is that if the government and the legislature have permitted companies to grasp these tremendous monopolies in order to use them as instruments of private convenience without the slightest regard to the time or feelings of the public, then I, for one, continued Clarence Villiers emphatically, protest against so atrocious a despotism. And I begin to be ashamed of my own country when I find it becoming the scene of a petty tyranny that would raise an outcry, even in Russia or Austria. Oh, the shoe pinches there, does it? cried Mr. Podgeson, in the vulgar triumph affected by wealth over popular interests. I tell you what, sir, and I shall not attempt to disguise the matter. We monopolists, as you call us, have got the railways in our own hands, and we mean to keep them. Aye, and do with them just as we like. Do you know how many hundred miles of railway I've got under my control? Ask the first person you happen to meet, and you'll be sure to find out. Well, do you think I won't use my rights and privileges? I may almost say prerogatives, eh, Mr. Stiles? Oh, decidedly, my dear sir, exclaimed that gentleman approvingly. Well, resumed the railway lion, do you think I won't use my prerogatives as I choose in fancy? If Mrs. Podgeson wants even so trifling a thing as a new laid egg from any particular station, the train shall wait for it. Talk to me about people's times. What the devil do I care for it? People must put up with things as they find them. They can't help themselves. We've knocked all the coaches off the roads, and you have no alternative but to go with us. But perhaps when a train is late at starting, or when it is kept, as it was yesterday, some of you knowing gentlemen will be after taking a pochet at the company's expense. I'd just advise you to do it. You'd have to sue us for the amount, and we'd ruin you in return. To recover five guineas, you would have to pay as many hundreds in law costs. Why, sir, it is perfect madness to think of fighting the great public companies. And we'll let the people know it, too. Having arrived at this liberal and enlightened determination, the railway lions ceased through sheer exhaustion, the volubility of passionate declamation not suiting his guttural voice. Although, sir, I obtain at your hands no satisfaction for the infamous delay to which the train was subjected yesterday, said Mr. Villiers, who had listened with calm and gentlemanly attention to the furious mouthings of the upstart, I am nevertheless pleased that I should have taken the trouble to call upon you in reference to the matter. I have learnt a lesson which I had not expected. I find that the sudden acquisition of wealth is calculated to set a man who rises from the people against the people, and that monopoly is a more tremendous engine of oppression in the hands of narrow-minded and self-sufficient persons than even its greatest haters could have conceived. I do not envy you your riches, sir, nor your sovereign sway over many miles of railroad nor even the title with which a fulsome and contemptible flattery has invested you. For the poorest mechanic who does his duty toward his fellow creatures is a worthier and more estimable being than you. 
with these words, uttered not savagely, but in a tone of firm and measured reproach. Clarence Villiers retired from the presence of the railway lion, who appeared, for the moment, to have had a calfskin thrown around his recreant limbs. So astounded and amazed was he at the language which his visitor had dared to address to him. This is the most atrocious proceeding I ever knew in the whole course of my life, at length exclaimed Mr. Bubbleton Stiles, who in reality had been much amused by the scene. I suppose that the riffraff, as I always call the people, will be willing to tell us next that railways are public property, cried Mr. Podgeson. But we'll show them the difference, eh, Mr. Stiles? Won't we, Mr. Stiles? And the railway lion condescendingly thrust his fingers in a jocular way into the small spectator's ribs. And then the great man and the little man had a hearty laugh together, that of the former being in the boisterous ho-ho-ho style, and that of the latter in the more respectable and submissive hee-hee-hee fashion. Having got upon this very comfortable and pleasant understanding together, Mr. Podgeson and Mr. Stiles chatted for about a quarter of an hour respecting the new railway scheme. Then the latter took his departure, highly delighted with the reception he had experienced and the success of his visit. Punctually, as the clock struck three that afternoon, did Captain O'Blunderbuss and Mr. Curtis present themselves at the office in Crosby Hall Chambers. And as a third stroke was proclaimed by the churches in the neighborhood, they entered the speculator's private room, where that gentleman was seated at the table with his watch in his hand. Good, exclaimed Mr. Stiles, returning the watch to his pocket. This is businesslike, and I am well pleased. The chops, you perceive, are smoking hot. The sherry, I know, is first rate. Thus speaking, he did the honors of the table, and the two guests did honor to the meal. The chops speedily disappeared. So did the bottle of wine, and the second was already opened before a word had been uttered on business matters. Now, gentlemen, at length cried Mr. Stiles, I will give you a toast. Here's the health of our chairman, the railway lion. No, you don't mean to say, ejaculated Mr. Curtis. Hold your tongue, Frank, and let Mr. Stiles say whatever he chooses, exclaimed the captain. Drink the toast, man, and that's all about it. I can assure you, gentlemen, continued the promoter of the new concern, that I have fulfilled the promise which I made you yesterday. Hodgson is ours. Hooray, vociferated Frank Curtis. Hoorah, thundered Captain O'Blunderbuss. It is indeed a subject for gratulation, said Mr. Stiles. The next point I wish to speak to you about is the prospectus, a proof of which I have received from the printer. It would have been all ready for issue by this time, while in my interview with the railway lion was prolonged far beyond the hour at which I had expected to be back in the city again and you may be sure that I was in no hurry when engaged with him, added Mr. Bubbleton Stiles, smiling significantly. Here, you see, he continued, displaying the proof of the flaming prospectus which he had drawn up. Here is the glorious document. It is sufficient to set the very Tams on fire. Never were such magnificent promises 
Never such brilliant hopes held out. And look, 32 names of the most eminent aldermen, merchants, common councilmen, and gentlemen. Why, half of them have got FRS to the end of their names, ejaculated Frank Curtis. What the deuce does that mean? And by Jove, he cried, now completely beside himself with astonishment. This is strange. Here's the secretary, Francis Curtis, Esquire, FRS, MA, MSIS, etc., etc. My dear friend Stiles. Patience, patience, Frank, said that gentleman with bland complacency. Those initials stand for various honorary distinctions which give respectability to the name. For instance, you are represented as being a fellow of the Royal Society, a master of the arts, and a member of several learned societies. God bless you, my dear fellow. Even the very etceteras have their weight in a railway prospectus. But I am nothing of all that you describe, ejaculated Frank Curtis, surveying Mr. Stiles with an expression of amazement that was quite ludicrous. I am well aware of that, answered the city gentleman coolly. Neither are half the aldermen or common councilmen, FRSs, or anything else, unless it's ASSs. But no railway scheme can be got up without this kind of gammon, for that is precisely the word. And an alderman who would send a poor devil to the treadmill for obtaining goods under false pretenses, if he only represented himself as Jones instead of Noakes, will himself assume any honorary distinction that is calculated to gull the public. Look at Alderman Higgs Higgs, for example's sake. Glance over the list of different railway schemes, and amongst the provisional committeemen belonging to each, you will see Higgs Higgs, Esquire, Alderman, FRS, etc., etc. Even that consummate ass, Alderman's son, has dubbed himself in a similar fashion. Therefore, I see no reason why Frank Curtis Esquire or Captain Gorman O'Blunderbuss should not be an FRS likewise. This explanation was highly satisfactory to the two gentlemen last mentioned, and on the strength of it, they drank bumpers to the success of the projected enterprise. I have duly registered the company, observed Mr. Stiles, and I have had an interview with Dummerley, the engineer, this afternoon. Oh, I can assure you that I have not been idle. Dummerley is ready to swear that he has surveyed the whole line from the south of England to the north of Scotland. But how is that possible? demanded Frank, again lost in astonishment. For, crafty and cunning as he was in petty trickeries, he was altogether bewildered in the mazes of colossal swindles. You only thought of the plan a few days ago and Dummerley would not have even had time to travel the whole distance there and back post-haste, much less to survey it leisurely. <laughs> you are quite green in these matters, Frank, observed Mr. Stiles. Green, ejaculated Captain O'Blunderbuss. Be Jesus, the Emerald Isle itself isn't so green as my friend Frank in certain respects. But it's after enlightening him you are, Mr. Stiles, and he'll be all the better for the taking. Dummerley is a regular good fellow, I can assure you, resumed the promoter. You will be the engineer, I said to him this afternoon. I told Podgeson that you would. Most certainly, he replied. 
and in the case the bill should be opposed in committee, you will be ready to swear that you particularly surveyed the part of the line relative to which the objections may be raised. Oh, of course, was his answer. And you will also swear that your plans are perfectly correct? As a matter of course, he again replied. Well then, said I, here's a five-pound note for you, and now fall to work as hard as you can to get all the plans up in such a business-like way that they may look legitimate. Dummerly accordingly took himself off as happy as a prince, and thus everything goes on completely in our favor. But it is now three minutes to five, and at five precisely, I shall step into the hackney omnibus at the flower pot, added Mr. Stiles, looking at his watch for the hundredth time during the last quarter of an hour. Frank Curtis and Captain O'Blunderbuss took the hint and their departure, and the promoter of a scheme for raising millions treated himself with a six-penny ride in an omnibus as far as Cambridge Heath Gate in which suburban quarter this great man resided in a six-roomed house, including the kitchens. End of section 16